evangelistic harvest is always urgent. The destiny of men and of nations is always being decided. It says every generation is strategic. We are not responsible for the past generation and we cannot bear the full responsibility for the next, but we do have our generation. And God will hold us responsible as to how well we fulfill our responsibilities to this age and take advantage of our opportunities. Those are the words of Billy Graham. And the man ought to know what he's talking about. Because he has spoken publicly about Jesus to more people in our generation and quite possibly any generation than anyone else. He is a man who has committed his life to telling others about Jesus. The question is, but are we? Probably not. I believe that most Christians want to be more vocal about their faith. There's a sense that we just don't know how to go about it. I came across an article that was written by a pastor who was honest enough to admit this in an article that he wrote for a Christian magazine. And because it illustrates so well the problem all of us wrestle with, I want to share it with you. The pastor was dressed in comfortable clothing and he was in a pair of old jeans and he boarded a plane to return home. It says he settled into the last unoccupied seat next to a well-dressed businessman with the Wall Street Journal tucked under his arm. It says the minister, a little embarrassed over his casual attire, decided he'd look straight ahead and for sure stay out of any in-depth conversation, but the plan didn't work. The man greeted him, so to be polite, the pastor asked about the man's work, and here's the conversation that took place on the airplane. The man said, I'm in the figure salon business. We can change a woman's self-concept by changing her body. It's really a profound, powerful thing. And his pride spoke between the lines. You look my age, I said. Have you been doing this very long? He says, I just graduated from the University of Michigan School of Business Administration and they've given me so much responsibility already, I feel very honored. In fact, I hope to eventually manage the western part of the organization. He said, so you're a national organization, I asked, becoming impressed despite myself. Oh yes, we're the fastest growing company of our kind in the nation. It's really good to be part of an organization like that, don't you think? I nodded approvingly and I thought, impressive, proud of his work and accomplishments. Why can't Christians be proud like that? Why are we so often apologetic about our faith or about our church? He says, looking askance at my clothing, he asked the inevitable question, so what is it that you do? He said, well, it's interesting. We have uh, similar business interests, I said. You're in the body-changing business. Well, I'm in the personality-changing business. We apply basic theocratic principles to accomplish indigenous personality modification. (laughs) He was hooked. He was hooked, but he wouldn't admit it because pride is a powerful thing. He says, you know, I've heard about this, but do you have an office here in this city? He said, oh, in fact, we have many offices. We have offices up and down the state. In fact, we're national. We have at least one office in every state of the union, including Alaska and Hawaii. He had this puzzled look on his face. He was searching his mind to identify this huge company he must have read about or heard about, perhaps even in the Wall Street Journal. I went on, as a matter of fact, we've gone international, and management has plans to put at least one office in every country of the world by the end of this business era. I paused. I asked, do you have that in your business? Well, no, not yet, he answered, but you mentioned management. How how do they make that work? I said, well, it's a family concern. There's a father and son, and they run everything. (laughs) He said, but it must take a lot of working capital, he said skeptically. 
You mean money? I asked. Oh, yes, I suppose so, but no one knows just how much it takes, but we never worry about it because there's never a shortage. The boss always seems to have enough. He's a very creative guy, and the money as well, it's just there. In fact, those in the organization have a saying about our boss. We say, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He looked at me and said, so you're in the ranching business too? He said, uh, oh, no, no, it's just a figure of speech indicating his wealth. My friend sat back in his seat trying to understand what it was that was going on. He said, well, what about you? He said, the employees, oh, there's something to see. I said, they have a spirit that pervades the organization. It works like this. The father loves the son, and the son loves, each, each of, and the son loves us so that their love for us filters down through the organization so that we will all find ourselves loving one another. He goes, I know that sounds old-fashioned in a world like ours, but I know people in the organization who are willing to die for me. Do you have that in your business? He said, well, well no, not yet. Quickly changing strategies, he asked, but how, what are the benefits? He said, oh, man, they're substantial. He says, I have complete life insurance. In fact, we even get fire insurance. He said, and you might not believe this, but this is also true. I have holdings in a mansion that's being built for me right now for my retirement. Do you have that in your business? He goes, well, not yet. But he was getting a little suspicious by this point, and the light was dawning. He says, you know, one thing bothers me about all that you're saying. He says, I've read the journals and the magazines. I keep track of what's going on in the news. And if your business is all that you say it is, why haven't I heard about it before now? He says, that's a good question, because after all, we have a 2,000-year-old tradition. He said, wait a minute. I said, you're right. I'm talking about the church. He said, I knew it. You know, I'm Jewish. He goes, that's okay. Do you want to sign up? (laughs) You know, we've all been there, haven't we? Those awkward conversations where we're not sure really how to go about or where to take it or where to go. It's like... um, You know, we're excited about talking about things that we have a comfort level, but with things that we do not. We hope that no one asks us a question. And so as I thought about that, I've asked the question of myself, why is it so difficult to tell others about Jesus? You know, when you think about what he had just shared with us and all that comes along with having a personal relationship with the God of of the universe who created us through faith in Jesus Christ, why is it so difficult for us to share our faith? You know, for many years I've wrestled with it. I've come up with four common hindrances. I don't know, there's probably more, but these are the ones that that I want to share with you today. And the four common hindrances are basically this. Number one, it starts with ignorance. You know, we want to share our faith. We want to tell people the wonderful thing that's happened to us if we come to faith in Christ. You know, the evidence is there. There's peace, there's joy, there's there's a transformed life, there's hope. And yet at the same time, we're really not sure how do we go about it? How do we bring it up in a conversation so that it's natural, so that it's not canned? Some of us have even gone to evangelism courses or courses on how to share our faith with others. And then we revert back to, you know, the, the list of things. You know, when they ask it, you just go... Oh, hold on a second, let me just read this to you. You know, we start going through the four spiritual laws or something that it's just like, well, wait a minute, and so we're not comfortable with it. Or we're just, we're not sure how to go about it. How do we go about having a conversation with somebody that's natural, that flows from the heart, that's a result of the interaction that we're having? There's ignorance there, obviously, and sometimes with ignorance there's fear because if we don't know how to go about it, we'll be afraid to. Even though the Bible over and over again tells us that you have not been given a spirit of timidity, but one of power, 
dynamite, dunamis, or dynamics, or, or dynamite in the English word. We've been given the Holy Spirit of God who is dynamite in the presence of the believer. And yet at the same time, we're afraid. We're afraid they may ask a question that we don't have answers for. Or we're afraid that we may offend them or something of that sort. And, and, and what's sad to me is it even leads to a certain degree of indifference. We just don't care enough about people. We say that we do, but we just don't. How can you care about someone and not warn them of the impending judgment of God for sin? How can you say you love someone and not warn them of the reality of hell and eternal separation from God in a place of torment and weeping and gnashing of teeth and no do-overs, a place of eternal judgment? Frankly, we just don't care enough about people. Or we've bought into the lie that, oh, you know what, just everybody can believe whatever they want to believe and to each his own and let's not offend anybody and let's all be politically correct and you can believe whatever you want to believe and who cares what you believe even if what you believe is wrong and you'll end up eternally separated from God in a place of torment, a place called hell. But you know what, but you're my best friend or you're one of my friends or I love you, you're a family member. You know, but if you want to spend eternity in hell, then you know what, hey, to each his own. Now, we don't come out and say that out loud because it sounds really stupid. And it sounds unloving. And it sounds callous because that's what it is. Or there's history. Some of us can remember a day before we've come to faith in Christ or even this day where people have come to us and they've tried to jam something down our throat and we've kind of taken a step back and went, whoa, wait a minute now, this is kind of, you're a little bit fanatical or you're one of those Jesus freaks or whatever it is that's going on in your life and hey, you know what, you better chill out, take a step back. And so we immediately flash back to those days when God brought people into our life to confront us with truth and we weren't comfortable with it. So as we're thinking about sharing with someone else, the only thing we're thinking about is they're going to think I'm nuts, they're going to think I'm nuts, they're going to think I'm nuts because I thought that person was nuts that came to me. And there's, there's many times I look out and I'm thinking, you people think I'm crazy. And, and, and you do. But that doesn't change the truth. It just doesn't change it. And there's been many times where I'm sharing with somebody and I'm looking in their face and they're looking at me and I'm thinking, God, I know they think I'm nuts. I'm a whack job. I'm just, I fell off the wagon, man. I'm, I'm one of those, you know, hell bob guys, you know. It's like you start thinking about the things that we share with people and you realize that, you know, man, they, they may be thinking, ooh, can't wait to get out of here. You know, hey, that's good. I remember when we first came to Faith in Christ, we went back east and I was sharing the gospel with my uncle. And he was like going, he was going bananas. He was like, man, this guy's flipped out. He's there. He was waiting for like, you know, spirits and angels and demons and stuff to come floating into the room and flying around and pick him up and carry him around and stuff. And he was just like, hey, well, we'll have to talk about this again sometime. Never. <laughs> You know, and those are the kind of things that you got in the back of your mind, you know. And so as you're looking at this, we come to a passage in Scripture that's going to help us all to, uh, to be able to share and tell others about Jesus in a way that is natural, in a way that is flowing, in a way that is loving, and in a way that as we look at the life of Philip, a man who is committing to telling others about Jesus, we'll learn six guidelines from this passage. If you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 8. If you've ever struggled with how to tell others about Jesus... This passage is a beautiful summation of how to do it in a way that is unoffensive, in a way that is natural, in a way that is productive. And in Acts chapter 
8, starting with verse 26, we read these words. It says, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza, and this is a desert road. And he arose and went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. To worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. And when Philip had run up, he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone tells me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. And he was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who shall relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the, ro- as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip, as well as the eunuch, as, and he was baptized. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. First, we immediately see, as we consider these six guidelines on how to tell others about Jesus, the first thing that we're introduced to is the fact that Philip has a sensitivity toward the leading of the Holy Spirit in his life. If you'll notice that in verse 26, it says, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go south to the road that leads to Gaza. Philip was not only a faithful preacher, he was also an obedient personal worker. See, Philip was like Jesus in many ways. And in fact, in this particular way, he was willing to leave the masses or the crowd and go and reach one individual. He wasn't hung up on numbers, but he was committed to to following Christ and his leading in his life. Every person in his life had value. Every person that he came across in his life was a person that was, was a person that God wanted him to reach with an understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do and what he came to accomplish. He didn't look past people as he was looking at another audience that was there before him. I've thought about that many times as I've gone to places where I'm committed to be there for a certain reason. And what I found is that as you look at individuals, for example, with the angels, I go into the clubhouse and I'm there to do chapel for the teams. But I also realize that there's a guy that I come in contact with every week that I'm there. And he's the security guard that lets people through or checks credentials. And throughout the course of this season, I've developed a relationship with him where I've given him some outlines, I've given him a tape of my testimony. We've developed a relationship where I'm asking about his family, what I could be praying about. And it's like, you know, it would be so easy to walk past him because I'm not there for you, I'm there for these people. Oftentimes we see that happen in our lives. And Philip wasn't a man who was so hung up on something else that he didn't see exactly what it was that God wanted him to do. Every person in our life, whether, you know, whoever it is in your life, We may be thinking of something else, but God says, but what about this person? Don't forget them as well. That was Philip. 
He had a sensitivity to the leading of the Spirit of God in his life. And if you stop and think about this, man, there was a lot of stuff that was going on. In verse 26, the word but indicates a strong contrast. We've already learned in our time together, but there was a revival that broke out in Samaria. Stop and think about the excitement, the enthusiasm. People were coming to faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, the Savior of the world, believing what Philip was preaching, the message of the God, proclaiming Jesus. And they were surrendering their lives to Christ, recognizing they were sinners, repenting of sin and turning to Christ as the answer for the problem of sin in their life. And many were coming to faith. They were being born again. And man, there was excitement. There was rejoicing going on. Man, there was stuff that was happening there. And yet, God says, hey, but i got something I need you to do. But the angel of the Lord was sent by God to tell Philip, I need you to go somewhere else. You know, think about it from a very human perspective. Philip wasn't one of the twelve. He wasn't one of the tremendous three, or the inner circle. He was a layman who had humbled himself to the point of obedience of being called to minister to the widows. He was faithful in little, and God made him faithful in much. He was faithful where he is, so that no matter where he was, God could trust him to move him to wherever he wanted him to go. See, so many people want to be faithful where they're not, and you haven't been faithful where you are. It starts here. And that was Philip's life. He was faithful where he was, and God says, because I can trust you now, I'm going to open up other doors of ministry for you. And so... Here's this guy who's going, man, but Lord, look at all this. This is awesome, man. I was, you know, helping the widows, and now I'm in the city of Samaria, and there's a revival breaking loose, and Simon the magician has been exposed as a, as a phony, as a fraud, and he's held these people captive for years, and you, through the Spirit of God, are freeing them up from all of their past, and you're using me to do that. And man, this is a great place to be. Then God says, but I don't want you here anymore. i got something else for you to do. But God had another plan. And the lesson that I learned from that is this. Never assume that because God directed in a certain way in the past, that that is how He will lead you in the future. Our relationship with God must be current. It must be relevant. We must be continually sensitive to the Spirit's leading in our life. Be still and know that I'm God. Or because He directed others in a certain way, that that's how He'll direct you or me. Hey, do you remember, and I, I just thought of this, or the Holy Spirit reminded me of the conversation that, that John had and that Peter had with Jesus. And Peter, as Jesus was saying, you know, do you love me, do you love me, do this, do that, do the other thing. And Peter turned and looked at John and looked at Jesus and said, but what about him? And Jesus said, you know what, mind your own business. I want you to do something and then I'll deal with him on how I want to deal with him. But my plan and my leading for his life has nothing to do with whether you will be obedient to me and my leading in your life. You follow me. See, we must never confine the Spirit's guidance to the box of past experience. He just won't fit. We need to be open and teachable and sensitive to the Spirit of God. I can't tell you the countless numbers of times where God has put another person on my heart or in my mind to call them or to write them or to visit them. Not even sure why or what it was that was going on or God, what is it that you want to do? But just the fact that, hey, listen, you just do what I tell you to do. And I'll reveal to you what that is as we move along. 
See, that was the case with Philip. He was sensitive to God's leading, which led to the second guideline, and that's this. Availability. Look at verses 27 through 29. And he arose and went. And behold, there's an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of all the treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And we're told, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join the chariot. Sensitivity without availability is disobedience. And disobedience always leads to frustration in the life of the believer. Sensitivity without availability is disobedience. And you and I will always be frustrated as God's people when we are not obedient to the leading of God in our life. There's no other way around it. Philip obeyed the subjective inner voice of the Holy Spirit. He was not only flexible as to how the Spirit would lead, but as to where he would lead. As I mentioned, you know, stop and think about that. Think about putting yourself in Philip's place. He was told to leave the revival of Samaria, and notice where he is told to go. He was told to go out to a desert road. There were two desert roads in this particular case. The desert road that we have here is the least traveled of the desert roads that led to the city of Gaza. Gaza was one of the five chief cities of the Philistines and it was destroyed in the first century B.C. So he was being told to go out to nowhere because God had something for him to do there. Contrast that in your mind. From this to nowhere. You want me to leave all of this to go out to a desert road that nobody's traveled, that no one's been on because it's, you know, the city was destroyed in the first century B.C. It's a road to nowhere. You want me to go there. Am I understanding you correctly? Now, some of us may have argued a reason with God. You know, can't you send someone else because oh, look what I'm getting done for you here. But here's all we need to know about the character or the heart of Philip. Verse 27, and he arose and went. It doesn't get any more beautiful than that of a person who is solely committed to following God's leading in his life or her life. And he arose and went. He did what he was being asked to do. No questions asked, no fill in the details, no can you give me a little hint or clue of what you got lying ahead for me? Can you tell me what's happening here because I'm giving up a lot and you're not promising much? Can you share some things with me? And you know what? God has never done that in the history of humanity. If you read Hebrews chapter 11, He's never told the whole story to anybody He's asked to follow Him. He's led us and He has revealed to us on a need-to-know basis. But as good soldiers, we salute and say, Yes, sir, we're following you. Availability. Tells us everything that we need to know. That this guy was sold out to God and he was sold out to God's plan. With sensitivity, there must always be availability. As God impresses others on our heart, we must then take action. Go. Write. Phone. Invite. When God impresses upon you the, the, the life of another person and we're sensitive to that and we don't know why that is. One of the, one of the most... Incredible experiences for me was I had met a gentleman one time not too long ago and, uh, and God had put him on my heart. said, Chuck, I want you to go visit this guy. And, you know, and, and it wasn't an audible voice, so, you know, if you don't think I'm at, really whacked. 
you know, but it was, hey, I want you to go visit this guy. And, and I don't know if you have these conversations with God like I do, but I'm like, well, that, why? Well, because I'm telling you to. Well, I know you're telling me to, but can you give me a little detail or some hint of what's going on here? Because this is kind of weird, you know. I'm going to go visit him, but I don't know what I'm doing there. So just go. All right. And after about a week of wrestling with him, you know, I said, all right, that's it, I'll go. So I drive up to the guy's house. I knock on the door. He comes to the door, surprised somewhat to see me. And I say, hey, um, you know what? I couldn't even tell you why I'm here, but God impressed upon me to come and see you. He looked at me and said, I know why you're here. I went, that's great, man. Tell me. <laughs> he said, come here, let's go. And we jumped in his car and we took a ride. And he, un- he just laid out everything that was going on in his life. I was like, man, those are exciting moments. I called a friend two weeks ago. Got a impressed upon me to give him a call and I wrestled with it like so many of us do for about another week. I must have this one week delay thing going. So I'm going to cut it down to maybe three days and pretty soon I'll just be doing it instantly. But, um, you know, so I called him and he goes, man, I was thinking about calling you. I said, well, you know I was thinking about calling you because I called you. So, you know what I'm saying? Talk is cheap, brother. And uh, he started laughing and I said, well, what's, what's going on? And he began to share with me a bunch of stuff that was happening in his life. And it was like, you know, there's no coincidences. When you're sensitive to God's leading in your life and you're available and you go, you put yourself in the most exciting place in the world to be and that's living within the will of God. Could you imagine what it must have been like for Philip to leave all the excitement of Samaria to go out to a deserted area of the desert on a road that nobody traveled and when he got there, he runs into the secretary of treasure Uh, the treasury for Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. The guy was a secretary of the treasury. He had a caravan that was probably miles and miles long. And he's thinking when he's going there, I don't know what God's up to, but you know what? I'm going to go. And whoa, this is a good one. This is great. There's a caravan miles and miles long, and here's a guy who's a secretary of the treasury for the queen of Ethiopia, and he's in his caravan, and God, you sent me out here to him. Man, this is awesome. This Ethiopian eunuch, a black man from Nubia, who had just returned back from Jerusalem on a quest or a search, he was seeking God. And he was living up to the light that God had revealed to him at that time. And there's so many lessons in all of this. Here was a man who was in a position of prominence and authority and wealth and material things and everything the world had to offer, but he was missing something in his heart. Like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, I got everything, but I have nothing. What do I got to do to get to heaven? What do I got to do to have a relationship with God? Don't ever be intimidated by what you see in the lives of other people as if somehow they've got everything. Without Christ in their life, they have nothing. Don't be intimidated by that. I don't care if it's your boss or the owner of a company or an athlete who makes 60, 80, 100 million dollars a year and has all kind of rings that they wear. Without Christ in their life, they have nothing. Jesus said, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or what would he exchange for his soul? Without a right relationship with God, Solomon said it in the journal in his book, Ecclesiastes, without a right relationship with God, I have nothing. He had everything the world had to offer. More money than he ever knew what to do with, and his riches exceeded even his reputation, and he had fame, he had fortune, he had pleasure, he had everything. And he knew he had nothing without a right relationship with God. And this man knew that too. 
And he was seeking God. And the truth of God's Word is this, those who genuinely seek a relationship with God shall not be disappointed because God sent His Son to seek and to save that which was lost. God is hunting down people and He sent Philip out to a deserted road that led to nowhere to hunt down a man who was seeking God. Wow, it's beautiful. And he was in the strategic position to be used by God because he was sensitive and he was available. What a tremendous thing that was taking place. He was a man who had been to church. He was a man who had religion but didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he was empty. And he was seeking truth. He was a noble man on a noble search. And God fulfilled His promise. Those who are sensitive and available experience exciting moments like this. There's nothing more thrilling in life to be a part of God's irresistible momentum. And Philip's obedience brought him to this point in his encounter with this Ethiopian eunuch to where the third guideline that we need to always remember is that of initiative. Initiative. Notice in verse 30, Philip ran up. Man, I love that. It's a sense of urgency. Can you imagine he's out there and he sees this caravan? He's going like, man, this is a great opportunity. And he's just flying, man. He's busting it to get up to this caravan. And he runs up to where the, where the, where the, where the eunuch is. And he looks at him and he says, do you understand what you're reading? He's already been reading. God is already preparing his heart. The Word of God is already gone. The Spirit of God has already prepared this man's heart so that when Philip arrives on the scene, a man who's obedient to the calling of God and he's available in his life, he's just there to deliver the message or to answer the questions. But God has already been at work long before Philip ever showed up in the desert. And we can take confidence that God has already been at work long before you and I ever show up. That God has paved the way. I learned that when I knocked on the door, I don't know why I'm here, and the guy goes, but I do. Hey, you know what? God had paved the way. And when he said, and I, and I know why you're here, and you were supposed to be here a week ago, that, that <laughs> was troubling to me. But initiative, he took the initiative. But there was no hint of being offensive in what he said. There was no put down in his approach. It was a simple, open-ended question. Do you understand what you're reading? Acts chapter 16, when we get to it, there's a beautiful passage there that has to do with a Philippian jailer who comes to Paul and Silas and says, what what must I do to be saved? Now, all of us sit around going, well, when somebody wants to know and they ask that question, I'll give them an answer. But you've got to understand, Paul had already been sharing with them. There was already communication that had taken place. He had already been sharing the consequences of sin and the reality of sin. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. His death, His resurrection. He had already shared that with them. So at this point when he says, what must I do to be saved? There was already some conversation that took place prior to that. You know, some of us think people are going to walk up to us and ask that. I've had that happen once. In 20 years of walking with Christ, I mean, and, and it was only because others had already shared, and it was at that point finally of, I've listened to this for two years, what, what do I got to do? Initiative is so important if we're to become more effective in telling others about Jesus. And the best way to initiate a conversation 
I talked to a fellow the other day. He said, you know what, I want to tell so-and-so and about Jesus, but I just don't know how to go about it. Hey, here's how you go about it. You ask him a question. You ask him or her a question. Like the question that was asked of me. Oh, Chuck, when did you become a Christian? Then I had an answer. Then I wasn't sure what was going on. And then as another question was asked, then I had to answer that too. And as we ask questions and allow people to answer and just kind of sit and wait quietly, let them start to answer. When did you become a Christian? Have you ever been to church? Oh, what church did you go to? Did you enjoy it or not enjoy it? What did you like? What didn't you like? And begin to ask those questions. The late Paul Little was, was a master at taking initiative. Here's a few suggestions that he gives. He says, even after a vague reference to religion in a conversation, many Christians have used this practical series of questions to draw out spiritual interests. First, hey, by the way, are you, even, are you interested in spiritual things? Many will say yes, but even the person that says no, we can ask a second question. Hey, what do you think a real Christian is? Wanting to hear his opinion invariably pleases a person. From his response will also gain more accurate first-hand, even if perhaps shocking, understanding of his thinking as a non-Christian. And because we've listened to him, he'll be much more ready to listen to us. Answers to the questions usually revolve around some external action. Going to church, reading the Bible, praying, tithing, being baptized, whatever. After such an answer, we can agree that a real Christian usually does these things. But then point out that's not a real Christian is. A real Christian is one who is personally related to Jesus Christ as a living person. When I was asked, when did you become a Christian? Many of you know, I said, well, I was baptized. I went to church. I was married to church. You know, I, I started throwing out all those external things. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, those are all good things. But that's not what makes a person a Christian. By then, it's like, do you mind if I tell you how to become a Christian? And my answer was, yeah, I'd love to because I'm never falling into this trap again. <laughs> so I need to know. I'll take a note. This is not going to happen to me again. But he goes on and says, the bait can also be drawn out succinctly if we are prepared for questions we are frequently asked. Often we recognize after it is too late that we have had a wonderful opportunity to speak up, but we missed it because we didn't know what to say at that moment. How many times have you had somebody come to you and say or say something in a conversation like, you know, my mother is sick or somebody's dying or a man, it's like whatever, and you go, hey, well, you know, how old is she? Oh, she's 83. Well, hey, 83, that's a good long life. Yeah, she lived a good life, huh? Hey, you know, she won't be suffering anymore. What in the world is that? I mean, here's a person that is open to listen to, hey, you know what, what happens after a person dies? They might not say, I'm concerned my mom's going to die. I don't understand death. What must I do to be saved? They're not going there. So we've got to make sure that our answers aren't lame. Think about that answer. Hey, 83, that's a good long life. Hey, well, praise God, pray for you. See you later. What in the world is that? Hey, don't come by again. You know, how depressing is that? See, you know, when we were at the conference, the hockey conference a month ago, one of the couples that stood up, one of the things that they said, and this, is, this was true of our, our, when, we were, when we were searching and seeking truth from God, but what, one, what they had said inevitably was this, that every person that they knew who had a relationship with God by faith in Christ, through faith in Christ, there was a peace in their life that they didn't understand. 
There was joy. There was peace. There was love. There was hope. There was, there was a sense of contentment. There was something about their life that drew people to say, man, you know what? What is it? Can you give me an answer for the hope that's within you? And we better be prepared at that point to do so. Philip was. Look at his tactfulness. Look at his tactfulness in verses 31 through 34. And he said, well, how could I? The Ethiopian eunuch said, how can I understand this? Unless someone guides me. See, God's program is to use people to proclaim His message. You cannot come into relationship with God without first hearing the Word of God. Faith comes through hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. It would be absolutely impossible for a person to come into a saving knowledge of God without ever hearing the Gospel presented to them. He said, I don't know. I don't understand and I can't understand unless someone explains it to me. Can you explain to me why you have such a hope? Can you explain to me why you have such peace? Can you explain to me why you have such assurance that when you die you're going to heaven? How can you, how can you have that kind of assurance? Can you explain to me why there's so much joy in your life in the midst of these circumstances that would absolutely destroy me? Can someone help me here? Can someone explain to me what it is that's going on in your life? He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Tactfulness. Notice this. He waited for an invitation. Now I want you to picture the humility of this. Philip is running alongside this caravan. So, how you doing? How's the day going? Pretty good? Oh, good. Hey, uh, you know, what are you reading there? Oh, Isaiah? I don't understand. Hey, do you understand what you're reading? I, I gotta go this way now. And uh, so, but the, but the caravan's still going that way. And he says, hey, hey, it's like, hey, so uh, do you understand what that is? And then he's like, no, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? Uh, uh, well, that's a good question. Uh, um, well, hey, uh, why don't you come on up and explain it? <sighs> Thank you. Gee whiz, man. You know, it's like, I've been running here for five miles. I don't know how long it's been. And, you know, it took that long for you to finally invite me up. You know, we don't know. But we know he was patient and he was tactful. And he listened without responding to the man's conversation. The passage of the Scripture he was reading was, He was led as a sheep to slaughter, as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. I mean, he's reading all of this. And you know, and the bottom line is that he was very tactful in his approach. When it was the right time and he was invited, he was ready to answer. He was ready to give him the answer that he needed to hear. The tactfulness was there. Rather than arguing, you know, some of us, listen to me, some of us think the way we respond to people that our eternity is based on whether we can convince anybody else to receive Christ as their Savior. It's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so none of us can boast. So it's not based on how many... This isn't God's pyramid scheme. This is not some multi-level marketing program. Hey, if I can get one person signed up, that person gets three people signed up, that person gets six people signed up, hey man, you know, eventually I'm not going to have to share Christ with anybody. I'll be, you know, I'll be up here. This will be great. You know, I'll get the residual effects throughout eternity. You know, this is, this is not a multi-level marketing program. You know what? You and I 
can be assured of going to heaven the moment that we die, absent from our body, present with the Lord. If we've recognized what God says is true, we're sinners. We've repented from sin. We've turned to Christ. We've responded with faith to the finished work of Christ, His death on the cross, and His resurrection, and we've received Him as our Savior. We are a child of God who believe in His name. Belief determines destination. Some of us argue with people as if our eternal destiny is at stake on how they respond. Our responsibility is in a loving way to present the claims of Christ and trust the Spirit of God had already prepared the way and if He hadn't already, then he's, now He's doing it and we're sowing seed and somewhere along the line, God will use that in that person's life. Don't we argue or nasty or mean-spirited with people? What is that? Philip was tactful. And he was also precise in what he shared. Notice that in verse 35. And Philip opened his mouth and began from that scripture he preached Jesus to him. Just as he arose and went was a pretty powerful statement to me. This one is equally powerful. Philip opened his mouth. Philip opened his mouth. When was the last time that you opened your mouth to tell someone else about Jesus. He opened his mouth. And beginning where he was, he then took him through Scripture to explain the meaning of the passage. He understood the Word of God. You and I will never be effective in reaching and telling others about Jesus if we do not become more familiar with the Word of God. Because when I have confidence in who I believe in and in what I believe and in why I believe and in when I believe, then I can have confidence in any question that any person has that comes to me and begins to ask me something because I know what I believe. When you do not know what you believe, you will not be an effective evangelist, so to speak, in telling others about Jesus Christ. And there is no excuse for ignorance. If you've trusted in Christ... The Spirit of God lives within you and me and teaches us and guides us into all truth. We have a responsibility before God to know what it is that He wants us to know. Know what we believe, why we believe it, so we become more effective in talking to and telling others about Jesus. We have great opportunities throughout the year to do so. There is no greater opportunity than to tell others about Jesus on Easter Sunday. But if you don't know why you believe in the resurrection, you have nothing to share. You just got to accept it by faith. That's nonsense. Our faith is based upon historical facts and evidence. It is not wishful thinking or hopeful supposition. It is a reasonable faith based on an understanding of facts that God lays out and presents to us. We need to know what we believe so that we can share with others more effectively. Philip was aware and understood the Word of God. And when he was asked this question, he didn't go, duh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know. He looked at that question. He started with that passage and he began to share with him Jesus. This is not about church. This is not about denominations. This is not about external rituals or rites of passage. The Christian faith is about Jesus. I came to proclaim and to preach to you Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When a friend of ours that we had come in contact with 
asked me the question, Chuck, does God care what church a person goes to? I turned to Scripture and read him passages that had to do with coming to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I have never yet once in Scripture found any denominations listed. It is not about church. It's about Christ and Him crucified. Stay away from all the divisive things. If a person thinks you're attacking their church or their heritage or their family history, they are going to put up a wall so quick they don't want anything to talk to you about. Avoid those things. We have learned from years in dealing with people from all different walks of life from all over the country that we do not have to go anywhere that's divisive other than what is divisive according to the Word of God. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified and faith in Him and Him alone that one becomes a child of God. But what about this or what about that? Let me go back to what we are just talking about. It's all about Jesus. Philip went to Scripture. And beginning with that place of interest, he then explained to him, the Ethiopian eunuch, who Jesus is. The Savior of the world. Put your faith and trust in Him. That's what we need to do. Jesus Christ Himself on the road to Emmaus explained who He is to those two disciples by taking Him through the Scripture. He said He began with Moses and the prophets and through all the Scripture He explained to them who He is according to the Word of God. And because they heard the Word of God, their eyes were opened and their ears could now hear. Preciseness and decisiveness. There's a point where we must in every conversation ask the question, would you like to have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ? How? Let me help you. Pray this way. It's not pray this prayer or follow these instructions. Hey, do you recognize you're a sinner? Yeah, I'm guilty before God. Then ask Him to forgive you of your sin. Do you believe that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for you? And that three days later He arose from the dead, proving overwhelmingly that we can trust Him and He's reliable because He can give us eternal life and forgive sin. Do you believe that in your heart? I believe that. Then ask Jesus Christ to come into your life. That's it. This, that's it. The decisiveness of, look at this goes on here. There's three things that are true. We'll wrap it up on this. Always of every genuine conversion, there's three things that are true. And notice what happens here. And Philip in verse 35 opened his mouth. He began with that scripture. He preached Jesus to him. And as they went along, notice there's a passage of time here. They came to some water and the eunuch said, look, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? The next verse isn't in the original manuscript. Shouldn't be there. But the, but, but the, the idea or the, the truth is still the same and that's this. Before that person would be baptized, they had already believed in Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God had already prepared them as they were traveling. He had already heard the claims of Christ. He had already come into a relationship with God. The Word of God is very clear. It's our belief that determines our destination. And that's what had taken place. This is added to help us understand that this is what had taken place on that journey. But there's always faith. By grace you've been saved through faith. 
If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. John 3, when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, he said, you must be born again. Titus 3, washed, regenerated by the Spirit of God. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone, we are born again by the power of God. Faith always precedes external rituals such as baptism. But the confession of faith is found in the fact that he wanted to be baptized. Stop and think about this. Man has a miles and mile long caravan of everyone that is there to serve him, to wait upon him, to, to, to help him, to aid him in his travel. He's a secretary of treasury. And as he's going along, he had come to faith in Christ and he had heard about what it meant to be baptized or publicly confess your faith before you know, the world around you. And as they came to water, he said, look, there's water. Why can't I be baptized now? He said, there's no reason not to. And I understand baptism classes and I understand all of that. And the reason that that's so important is because we never want to confuse a person into believing that external ritual is what's making them right with God. So we want to have a, a time where you can instruct people to say, have you come to faith in Jesus Christ and let's go through the Gospel again? Do you have a clear understanding? Because we don't want you to be baptized and confused by being baptized as that is the day or that's the moment in time where, where you, were, you know, became a child of God or saved from the judgment of God. Because if you haven't come to faith in Christ first, we're not going to confuse you by baptizing you. This guy understood that, you know what, I've come to faith in Christ and now I want everybody to know it. I want all of these people in this caravan, I want everybody in this line to know that I have come to faith in Christ, that God has revealed to me the light, and the light is Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world, the true light that shines in darkness, and the darkness doesn't comprehend it. But I have come to faith. I've been called from darkness into light so that I can proclaim the excellencies of Him who has done so. I want people to know that I know Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of Him. And he stopped and he got out and he got in the water and he was baptized. Man, I'll guarantee you there was a buzz going on in that caravan that day. What in the world's going on up there? And you don't think that the gospel was shared from chariot to chariot to wagon to wagon to foot, footman to footman? Man, it was being spread all over the place. The decisiveness of it's time to make a decision. And you know what? In every genuine conversion, there is always rejoicing. Verse 39 the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. I love that. You talk about a word picture. He came, delivered the message, and then God said, boom, you're out of here. And they were just like, "Woo, man, that's pretty cool. You know, that's good stuff. He's done it before, so you know, it wasn't surprising he could do that again. It was kind of like some of us, our version of it is, have you ever been like driving down a freeway and you come like, and you go, where am I? I, I do that. I mean, it's like going, man, am I, did I miss the off-ramp? And it's like, oh, where am I? Well, this isn't the same. <laughs> but I just thought of that so there's just a whole bunch of other things I think if I don't even share them you ought to be really grateful <laughs> but you know there was rejoicing that was going on there was rejoicing and you know what he found himself Philip 20 miles from where he was in the city of Azotus and you know what we know about Philip everywhere that he went he told people about Jesus see that in verse 40 he was in Azotus. He was 20 miles from where he was a minute ago and he kept preaching the gospel. He didn't miss a beat, man. We know 20 years later from history that he was a missionary to the Ethiopians telling them about Jesus. You want to tell others about Jesus? 
Oh, by the way, it's not an option. I shouldn't have asked it as a question. Uh, as we're telling others about Jesus, here's some guidelines to follow. Be sensitive to the leading of God in your life. When He puts someone on your heart, you know what? Be available and follow up. Take the initiative. Ask Him, how are things going? Be more poignant. Hey, you know what? Get around to some spiritual things. Do you, what, do you believe this? Do you believe that? Why do you believe this? Why don't you believe that? Ask them some questions so you can generate some, some conversation. Be tactful when they're wrong because unless they believe in Jesus Christ and in Him crucified, they're wrong. And that's just the way it is. We need to enter by the narrow gate for broad is the road that leads to destruction and many therefore travel that direction. So we need to be tactful in the fact that if they believe something other than a reality or truth of God's Word, we need to be tactful enough to be able to share with them where that confusion is or where that error is in a loving way that hopefully we can continue to maintain a relationship. We need to be precise. And that is that when they get off on tangents, keep coming back to Jesus. But who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you believe that Jesus is? What do you believe that Jesus did? Do you believe that He rose from the dead? Why or why not? And then you can get into the arguments for the resurrection. Oh, it's beautiful. You know, there's always a way to go if you know what it is you're trying to accomplish and what you're trying to accomplish is bring people to Jesus. Just consider Him. Jesus. Who do you say that He is? If He is anything less in your life than my Lord and my God, then you don't know the God of this universe. And you need a relationship with Him. Be decisive. Would you like to pray? Not with any pressure, because it's the sincerity of a person's heart. We can convince people all the time through persuasive speech and trying to manipulate them and make them feel emotional and you know, give them the old, hey, if you don't pray this prayer, I can't date you. If you don't pray this prayer, I can't marry you. If you pray this prayer, I can't hire you. If you don't pray this prayer... You know what? Come on. If you don't pray this prayer in the sincerity of your heart then you're still lost and dead in your sins. And you're on the way to hell, and that's a reality, but you know we're not going to manipulate you with any other nonsense that we can confuse the message. Decisiveness. A man and his dog were walking along a road. The man was enjoying the scenery when suddenly it occurred to him he was dead. He remembered dying and that the dog had been dead for years. He wondered where the road was leading them. After a while, they came to a high white stone wall along one side of the road, and it looked like marble, and at the top of a long hill, it was broken by a tall arch that glowed in the sunlight. When he was standing before it, he saw a magnificent gate in the arch that looked like a mother of pearl, and the street that led to the gate looked like pure gold. He and the dog walked toward the gate, and as he got closer, he saw a man at the desk at one side. When he was close enough, he called out, Excuse me, where are we? This is heaven, sir, the man answered. Wow! Would you happen to have some water? Well, of course, sir. Come right in and I'll have some ice water brought right up. The man gestured at the gate about to open and he said, Can my friend, gesturing toward the dog, come in too? I'm sorry, but we don't accept pets. The man thought a moment and then turned back to the road and continued wandering his way. And after a long walk at the top of another long hill, it came to a dirt road which led through a farm gate that looked as though it had never been closed. There was no fence and as he approached the gate, he saw a man inside leaning against a tree reading a book and he said, Excuse me, sir. Do you have any water? He said, yeah, sure, there's a pump over there. The man pointed to the place that, couldn't, that he couldn't be seen from the outside of the gate. He said, come on in. How about my friend here? The trivial gesture to his dog. Well, there should be a bowl by the pump. They went through the gate, and sure enough, there was an old-fashioned hand pump with a bowl beside it. The traveler filled the bowl, took a long drink himself, gave some to the dog, and when they were full, he and the dog walked back toward the man who was standing by the tree waiting for them. He said, what do you call this place? He said, this is heaven. Well, that's confusing because the man down the road said that that was heaven too. 
He said, oh, you mean that place with the gold street and pearly gates? He says, no, that's not heaven. That's hell. He said, doesn't it make you mad for them to use your name like that, calling it heaven? He goes, no, I can see how you might think so, but we're just happy that they screen out the folks who will leave their best friends behind. And obviously, it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God, lest any of us should ever boast. But now I'm troubled. Now I'm troubled by the question, how can any of us call people in our life friends that we've never warned of the impending judgment for sin? I mean, how can any of us be satisfied that we're going to end up in heaven because of our faith in Christ and in Him alone and not want to tell anybody and everybody that God brings into our life about Jesus.